0: All right, if you guys have your Bibles, John chapter 3 is where we are. John chapter 3, we are spending a little bit more time than normal as we're going through this account because this is so foundational for us as believers to understand how we were saved, and it's so foundational for us as evangelists to understand how others are saved. Are you supposed to go to others and proclaim, if you just follow these seven steps, you will be saved? We talked about last week why the new birth is a very strange misconception in a lot of people's minds. They they call themselves born-again Christians as if there is something else that you can be other than born-again to be truly saved, to be truly a follower of Jesus Christ. We started meandering our way through this in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, this man named Nicodemus, which means Ruler of the people, Nico um, Nike, um, Conqueror, Demas, people groups. Um, so ruler over the people. And that's exactly what he was. He was a ruler of the Jews, so he's a Pharisee. He's also part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who make up basically the Supreme Court in Israel. Every Jewish person would have to answer to them. He comes to Jesus by night. We talked about how there are various interpretations of why he... It's specified that he came by night. I think the clearest reason why that's there is to let us know that Nicodemus didn't go by day. Um, He shows up at night. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, which is a very respectful, honoring term, considering that Jesus was not a part of the rabbi union that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had um, grown and originated. You had to do things to get into that union of being a rabbi. Jesus was not one of those people, and yet... Nicodemus says, you are a rabbi, you are a good teacher. And Jesus was um, much younger, maybe even half the age of Nicodemus. And so the older you are, the wiser you are supposed to be and the more respect you're supposed to have. And so you would never submit yourself to somebody younger than you. And this is a very gracious thing for Nicodemus to say. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he is saying everybody in this group, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we all know that you're sent by God. We we know that because of the signs that you are doing. And a lot of people give Nicodemus too much credit at this point to say, look, he's saved. He knows that Jesus is sent by God. But as we saw last week, as we saw earlier in chapter two, verse 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name because they were observing his signs, which he was doing just the same way Nicodemus observed the signs and said, yes, this man must be from God. But Jesus was not entrusting. My Bible says entrusting. It's the exact same word for believe in verse 23. Jesus was not believing them about their belief in him. He didn't believe that. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He didn't need anyone to testify concerning uh, man because he knew what was in them already. He knew all of them. And we saw those two connections in the beginning of chapter 3. Nicodemus is saying, I believe in who you are because of the signs, but that is not saving belief. That's why Jesus would never entrust himself to a Nicodemus-type person just because they saw the signs and believed. One pastor says it this way, seeing signs and wonders and being amazed at them and giving the miracle worker credit for them that he is from God saves nobody. This is the this is one of the great dangers of signs and wonders. You don't need a new heart to be amazed at them. That's where Nicodemus is. He's amazed, but he doesn't have a new heart. He needs a new heart. And Jesus knows that. There's no question in Nicodemus' uh, statement here. It's not a question. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know this about you. God is with you. It's a statement. But, again, the connection with the last chapter, because... Jesus knows what is in man. He knows there's a question inside of that, even though there's no question stated. And we looked at that last week, the answer to life's most important question, the question that was never even asked, which is, how do we get to God? How can I go to heaven? How can I know without a shadow of a doubt that I can get to heaven? What do I need to do to get there? And Jesus answers a question that was not even asked, but a question that is going on inside of Nicodemus's heart. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or literally born from above, unless God births him again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot get into heaven unless you are born again. That analogy is very clear. What did you do to contribute to your physical birth? You did absolutely nothing. So, too, it is with spiritual birth to be saved. You do absolutely nothing. Now, Nicodemus is going to ask, we're going to pick it up in verse 4 here. He's going to ask, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? We see this repeatedly in the Gospel of John, by the way, where Jesus says a statement and people misunderstand it. And it gives Jesus the opportunity to further clarify what he first said. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus makes a statement, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot get to heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus says, how can you be born again physically? And Jesus, knowing that Nicodemus is not quite getting this, says a clarification point to him, which should have rung a bell in his mind, and we're going to look at it, even though to us this is further befuddling the statement he's about to say. He's saying the second, the first statement is, you must be born again. That kind of makes sense to us because we know what that is. Now he's going to say something that's supposed to clarify that first statement, but it's a little bit more confounding to us. The statement is, in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does that statement mean? What is that a reference to? There have been so many different interpretations to that water and the spirit. Um, Some people say that uh, it is a reference to your physical birth, um, the breaking of the water, and then your spiritual birth through the spirit. There's a number of reasons why that's probably not the case. One of which is water is never used in the reference anywhere in the Bible of birth. So this would be a strange way to to talk about physical birth just using that word. We would be imposing our understanding of the breaking of your water uh, for birth. Some people say it's a reference to baptism. Some people say you must be baptized and you must have the Spirit regenerate you. There's three reasons. I want to give you three very specific reasons uh, why that's not the case. Um, The reason why is this is actually a more prevalent view than the physical birth and then spiritual birth view. This is a view held by many churches that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Is that what this verse is saying? I don't think it is, number one, because if it were necessary to be baptized to be saved, this truth, if that's the case, you have to be baptized to be saved, this truth not only drops out of the whole rest of the Bible... You never find this again. But secondly, in this section of scripture, if you drop down to verse 15, uh, it's completely gone. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So believing, that's going to be synonymous with the work of the spirit that is regenerating you to give you the ability to believe. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. So where's baptism in that? If you need to be baptized to be saved it's gone. And it seems very strange that only, let's say, 40 seconds later, if Jesus did just say you must be baptized and receive the Spirit in order to be saved, it seems strange that 40 seconds later he says it's only about receiving the Spirit and letting him regenerate you. Uh, Verse 16, same thing, whoever believes in him shall not perish. It's interesting that he wouldn't say whoever believes in him and is baptized will have eternal life and verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's not He who does not believe and is not baptized. So that's reason number one. It just drops out. If this were the case, we don't see it anywhere else. Number two, if you drop down to verse 10, Nicodemus is going to answer after Jesus' statement. We're going to look at this next week, but... Nicodemus is going to say how can these things be and Jesus is going to answer and say to him are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things what I'm telling you it would seem strange it would seem like a a misguided rebuke if Jesus is saying you must be baptized to be saved and then he turns to Nicodemus and says you should have known this um that, that's a very strange rebuke because baptism is not in the Old Testament. Um, there is nothing in the Old Testament that says you must go through a process of baptism in order to receive God's favor. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you already knew this truth from the Old Testament. And his rebuke is a, is a good rebuke because he's saying you chose not to receive it. You chose not to believe it, but it was something you already knew that was there. If this is something Nicodemus should have known, then it has to be some reference to the Old Testament. It has to be some reference to um, something that had gone on previously that Nicodemus should have known. And that's really number three, reason number three. This statement is clearly an allusion to an Old Testament passage. Um, He's he's looking back at a passage uh, in Scripture, um, and he's saying with an allusion to this specific passage is Ezekiel 36. Nicodemus, you should have known what it means to be cleansed by God and be regenerated by his spirit. Jesus is giving this allusion from Ezekiel chapter 36, and it's a promise in Ezekiel that he is expecting Nicodemus not only to know, but to fully understand, and Nicodemus has forgotten it. He's trying to, again, give him some help to to ring a bell, maybe in his mind, with this further clarification. So what is he alluding to? Let's go back there. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Haven't been in Ezekiel in a while, so let's um, make a a little expedition back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Some of these words will be familiar to you. Uh, This is all new covenant language. This is language that deals with the the newness of the covenant that God is going to give Not just to Israel, there's portions of this covenant that are only given to Israel, but there's portions that are given to everyone who would be grafted into this covenant, and you'll be able to see what those portions are. Starting in verse 22, this is something Nicodemus would have known, would have been hoping for, would have been praying for, would have been waiting for. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So this is specifically to Israel. Then... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. That's the, you must be born of the water. You must be born of water. You must be cleansed, sprinkled with clean water. Then, verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit that's born of the spirit. So born of water, verse 25, born of the spirit, verse 26. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what's going to happen with the new birth, with the new covenant. There are a couple other places where the new covenant is described turn to jeremiah chapter 31 jeremiah chapter 31 Uh, this is a couple books back isaiah jeremiah so jesus is alluding to ezekiel 36 and there's many other passages that we do not have time to go look at but he's alluding to these passages of being sprinkled with clean water to make you clean and then being given a new heart there's two aspects of And that's why he refers to you must be born of water and born of the Spirit. We're going to talk about what that means. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them... And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will forgive them, I will cleanse them, and I will give them a new heart. Two aspects, forgiveness and cleansing, new heart new spirit. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 39 through 40. I will give them one heart. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Again, there's aspects of this covenant that are strictly given to Israel alone, land aspects, blessing aspects for sure. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus, when in the upper room is going through the Lord's supper, that last supper, he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant that is now given, not just to Jewish people, but it's given to everyone who would believe Gentiles grafted in Romans nine through 11. Gentiles are now given the opportunity to be grafted in and receive certain aspects of this new covenant. That's a beautiful blessing that we need to praise the Lord for. Drop down to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 8. I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. That only has the cleansing aspect. The other passages have all said there's cleansing, there's forgiveness, and there's a new spirit. Okay, why why is that necessary? John 3, when Jesus says, in order to enter into the kingdom... You must be cleansed. You must be born of water and born of the Spirit. Why two things? Here's why. Because forgiving your sins, cleansing you of your sins, is not enough to get you to heaven. Um, Cleansing you of your sins, but not changing you from the inside, would not be enough to get you to heaven. Why? Why? Because if you were cleansed of your sin, but the heart did not change, you would still have a heart that hated God and loved sin and had no capacity to have affections for God, only affections for sin. Therefore, you just keep chasing down your sin, keep running away from God. So God needs to cleanse you of your sin, past, present, and future, yes, but he also needs to change you from the inside. So he changes your outside. He cleanses the old man, as it were. You're still you when you are born again. I, when I was born again as a believer, I'm still Patrick Carmichael, and my old man is cleansed, but I'm also a new creature. I'm a new creation. A new spirit, a new heart is given to me. And you need both of those things to enter into heaven, because if you do not have that new heart, you wouldn't even want to go to heaven. You would hate God, and why would you want to be in heaven where God exists? This is a, a very real issue in my household. My beautiful children just love being dirty, and I know that 's a kid thing, but I just wonder sometimes what 's going on in their hearts that they just love if there 's mud anywhere it 's not like a hand it 's not a foot it 's not just creeping it 's face plant as fast as you can into this mud they love bath time they they love getting incredibly dirty, and then just running as fast as they can, screaming through the house, tracking mud everywhere. It's bath time. They love that. And we keep cleaning them and sometimes two, three baths a day because they keep going back to the same mud hole, jumping in the mud, and they have to come back and be cleansed. The only way that we can get to a place where we don't have to repeat this bath time necessity every single day is if they, in their heart of hearts, would figure out, you know what, I don't need to jump into this mud puddle. I don't need to go there. And their heart would change, and they would say, you know what, for the sake of my parents' sanity, we're going to stop doing all these baths, and we can just totally exist in life and enjoy it without having to jump into the mud. Now, I don't have any delusions of grandeur. I know that's probably going to happen for another 13, 14, 17 years. Totally fine. But that's, that's what's happening here. If we, in our sin ran to God, which wouldn't even be possible because we wouldn't want to, but if we ran to God or God came to us and cleansed us from the filthiness of our sin and said, okay, now live for me without giving us a new heart, then we'd just run straight back to the mud puddle of sin, of depravity, and we just have to keep doing this all over again. No new heart means no new affections, means no new capacity to be able to love God, to desire him, and to go to heaven. That's why Jesus says in John three, let's turn back there. That's why Jesus says you must be born of water. You must be cleansed of your sin and God's going to do that. And God must give you a new spirit. He must give you a new heart. The spirit must regenerate all of your affections. Otherwise you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse six, he says that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is that statement? This is where just Again, Jesus is trying to clarify, and I think he is in Nicodemus' mind, but this is just further confusing to me. This is what he's saying. Nicodemus asked, how can a man enter the womb and be born a second time? Physically. So, Jesus, you're telling me that I need to be born again in order to be saved. How can I do that physically? Jesus is saying, even if you could do that physically, which you can't, But even if you could, it wouldn't solve the problem because you would still be born of flesh. And that which is flesh and is born of flesh is flesh through and through. You have no capacity just as a human being to love and desire God on your own. So Nicodemus's question is, okay, you're telling me in order to get to God, I need to be born again. So let me find a way to be born again physically. And Jesus is saying, no, that won't even solve the problem. You have to be born of the spirit. By natural birth, you become a part of your earthly family. You become a member of your earthly family. To become a member of the family of God, you have to be born of God. God has to birth you. And again, did you have any choice of who your family was going to be? No. So too, God has to be the one that says, I will give you life and you can be a part of my family. God has to do that. Verse 7, Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, that's singular. Do not be amazed that I said to you, in answer to the question that you didn't even ask, um, what do we need to do to get to heaven? Do not be amazed that I said to you, singular, Nicodemus, you, plural, everyone, must be born again. If you want to be saved, anyone who desires to be saved must be born again. Nicodemus is asking, what do I do to make that happen? How do I contribute to the new birth? How do I contribute to, get, to getting to God? And Jesus says it's impossible for you to contribute. It's just like the wind. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind is invisible. The wind is irresistible. The wind is uncontrollable. It's unpredictable. It's not subject to human summons or desires. You don't control the wind. Um, I used this as an example one time in the Philippines. I was talking about the new birth. I was talking about the wind blowing, wherever it is. And I said, you can't harness the wind. You can't control the wind. So we were at a youth group and I said, I said to this little kid, I want you to try and catch the wind. There was this huge fan, turned it on. I said, I want you to try and catch the wind, thinking he's going to be like, oh, I can't. Oh, good. Point proven. And he goes, oh, these kids are so intelligent. They're like miles, leap years beyond our kids. This this guy goes, oh, just runs out. I'm like, whoa, did I offend this poor kid? Out of the building. Comes back with this big Ziploc baggie, runs in front of the fan, puts the bag open in front of the fan, and then zips it up and gives me this bag that's all puffed up and says, here's the wind. It's like, well, I don't know where to go from there. (laughs) If you don't have spiritual Ziploc bags, you can't catch the wind. I don't know what to do. So I don't use that example anymore. Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. Nicodemus is saying, how can I control the uncontrollable? And Jesus is saying, you can't. How can I force the new birth to happen? You can't. This is devastating to our pride. This is devastating to all of us who think I can do something to get to God. Jesus is trying to emphatically tell Nicodemus and us this morning, you can do nothing Now, there's an interesting translation issue in verse 8. The word wind, pneuma in the Greek, is the exact same word for spirit. In fact, in verse 8, the text reads, The pneuma blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the pneuma. So some people say, the first translation of wind should be spirit. The spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Um, I don't think that that's what it should be. I think that Jesus is, again, giving us a helpful analogy. And I think there's a couple reasons why. Number one, hearing the sound, that's really not fitting for what the spirit does. You don't hear the sound of the spirit. Um, You hear the sound of the wind. Um, So that's the first clue. But also the point of this is there is some force that's hidden, but its effects are unmistakably evident. There is a force that is hidden. You can't see it. It's invisible, but you see its effects. And that's exactly what the wind is. The wind is a force that you can't see, but you absolutely see the effects of the wind Therefore, I think it should be translated the way it is in my Bible. The wind is blowing wherever it wishes. You hear its sound. You know it's there. You see its effects, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. That's exactly the way the Spirit works in our hearts. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you know that it takes root in somebody's heart. You know that it has affected somebody. Why? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You know if somebody is born again. You see the effects of the wind, and so you see the effects of the Spirit in somebody's life. Their life changes. Their affections change. They have the fruit, the evidence that the Spirit has taken root. Nicodemus is going to say to him, how can these things be? We give Nicodemus a bad rap. Like, man, why can't you just get it? Um, I think he totally gets it. We need to give him more credit. I think he totally gets it. He's a very smart person. Um, He's a bright man. I think he totally understands the analogies, the illusions. I think he's totally figuring these things out. This is what he can't wrap his mind around. The entire system that he has been teaching and preaching of how to get to God, Jesus is saying it was wrong. The entire paradigm, this isn't paradigm shifting, this isn't paradigm shattering, this is paradigm obliterating. Nicodemus has thought, I know the answers, I know the road to get to God, be moral, be ethical, do your best, keep the law, and then God will grant you entrance into heaven. As we talked about last week, heaven, the door of heaven, only opens from the inside. You cannot force it open. You can't get it open. Only God is the one that can open it for us. That flies in the face of Nicodemus' religion. His religion says, I do things and God is happy with me. I do things to get to God. I don't know if you guys have ever taught something to somebody. This happens regularly in my fallible existence. You teach something to somebody and then a couple of weeks later you realize that was wrong. And you have to go back and say, I was wrong. Let's fix this. By God's grace, in my, in my life, that's usually not deep theological doctrinal things that, oh, I told you the wrong way to get to heaven. Hopefully that's not happening. Usually it's facts, anything having to do with math. You can just blanket statement, I'm going to say something wrong with math figures. But you have to go back and you have to apologize. I'm sorry I was wrong. Messed that up. Here's the accurate thing. How much more would it be devastating to you if you're in Nicodemus' shoes? You have just learned that your entire life has been built on something that not only is wrong. You've taught people what is wrong. you followed what is wrong. But it's not just, well, that's not the right way, but it's a way. It's not the best way, but it's a... What Nicodemus is learning is what you have taught people is a damning heresy. You try to get to God the way that you're trying to get to Him, and you'll go to hell. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are all sons of your father the devil leading hordes of people to hell as you're going there. That's what Nicodemus is hearing right now. And that's why he's saying, how can this be? My entire life has been built on a faulty principle. The gospel that says you can do nothing to get to heaven, is shattering the law. Shattering the law in Nicodemus's heart. Why is it this way? Why can't we do things to get to God? I mean, he's given us a book that gives us some rules. Why can't we just keep them? Why can't we be good people and God will love us and, and let us get to heaven? With the time that we have remaining, I want to spend just a little bit of like Systematic theology here. Um, We're going to go through some verses. We'll go through them quickly. So if you can't keep up, that's totally fine. You can just write down the verses. I want to look at what the Bible has to say about two things. Number one, why the new birth is necessary. Why this is the only way you can come to Christ. Why this is the only way you can be saved. And I want to see if the rest of the Bible has the same phraseology to talk about the new birth. To talk about God granting us life. In a new birth fashion. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 2. Why is this the only way that we can be saved? Isn't there another way? Can't we do good things? Can't we find a way to get to God? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. So can you as a dead person do anything to get to God? No, you're dead. You're dead. It's like Lazarus. Um, Lazarus could only come from the grave because Jesus said, I give you life. Now you can come. And by the way, there are aspects of us doing things inside of salvation. We're going to talk about this over the next couple weeks because I, I don't want us to confuse regeneration with salvation. Uh, regeneration is an aspect of salvation. To be saved You must be regenerated. Um, But regeneration is not the only thing that happens. You must be justified. You have things that you must do. I have things that I must do to be saved, namely two of them, faith, believe, and repent. If you don't have faith and you don't have repentance, then you can't have been regenerated and you can't be saved. But you cannot have faith, you cannot believe in God, and you cannot repent if your heart hasn't been made new. So regeneration has to come first. Remember we talked about regeneration is the second in order of salvation. First, the the first process in the order of salvation is God elects, he predestines, he chooses. And then the second is he gives us a new heart, he regenerates us. And then the third is he's going to justify us as we have faith in him, as we believe in him, and as we repent. We do things just like Lazarus did things, right? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is the one that has to come out of the tomb. So, too, we have to do things, but we never do things to earn regeneration, to earn justification. We never do those things to earn God's favor. We do them because God has granted us a newness of life because of his great mercy. We were dead. We were dead. There was no way that we could raise ourselves. So God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. He gave us life. He, he created life in us. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, again, familiar passage. Verse 17. So this is after the contrast of what happens when you sin, You're tempted when you're carried away by your own lusts. Lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, once accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin gives birth to death. So don't be deceived. Here's the opposite of that. Here's the contrast. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow or shadow of turning. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Um, Every good thing, every perfect gift is from above. That's the exact same word, born again. Remember, again is literally from above. Born again, born from above. That's the exact same Greek, Greek word there. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. God gives it to us. And in the exercise of his will, he's the one that brings us forth. That's the same word that's used in verse 15, talking about sin giving birth to death. Jesus brings us forth. He gives birth to us. How? By the word of truth, not by our actions, by his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We hear the word. We receive the word. Regeneration happens. Why does he do all this? So that we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures. A spiritual harvest, the cream of the crop. He's bringing out and saving individuals so that he can have a harvest of souls for himself. But he brings us forth by his will, not by our own doing. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, a couple books back from James. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 He saved us. He did the saving. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We couldn't do them because we were dead. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's that word, uh, the word picture of cleansing, the washing, the cleansing of our souls, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So you you have those exact same parallels. You have those exact same um, word pictures as in John 3, 5. The washing of the water in regeneration and forgiveness and the renewing by the spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through jesus christ our savior so that being justified by his grace not by our merit we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life it's all him this is new birth language this is the exact same phraseology washing cleansing and regeneration by the spirit 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you can just write that down. You know it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, new creation. He's been born again. He's a different person entirely through and through. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts so that we would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to receive. And God's the one, just like the darkness was overcome by God doing the work to say, let there be light, so too the darkness and sin in our own hearts is overcome by God doing the work. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to, To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He did the work. He caused the new birth. He brought us to life. Drop down to verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Again, how are we born again? Through the living and enduring word of God. You see how the Bible is just... um, Perfectly complete with itself. It's it's saying the exact same thing. There's no contradiction. Jesus says you must be born again. Peter saying you had to be born again by him doing the work. Paul says that. Turn to Colossians chapter two. A couple more books and then we'll be done here. Colossians chapter two. Um this is beautiful language, beautiful imagery of what takes place in our lives and in our hearts. When Jesus does the work of regeneration, when he sends his spirit, Colossians chapter two, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He canceled out the certificate of debt. He has taken it out of the way. He has triumphed. We were dead and he made us alive. He made us a new creature, a new creation. Turn back over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We did nothing. He transferred us. We just passively sat there and he worked on us. Lastly, turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John uses this language. He wrote John. He wrote the gospel, but he's going to use this language in his letters as well. 1 John chapter 2. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. He birthed you. And the effects of Him working in you are clearly seen. What are the effects? The fruit of the Spirit, practicing righteousness. Now, because you have a new heart, you're able to live practicing righteousness. Do you sin? Absolutely. But it's not a practice anymore the way it was before we received the new birth. Go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. We sin, yes. We struggle with sin, Yes but it's not a practice. Why? Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He's been born from above. exact same John 3 language. And then turn to chapter 4, verse 7. You guys know this one. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. Everyone who's loving because God birthed him We see the effects of the new birth and its love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us so that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life through him. The new birth is only possible through him giving us life. Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. We did something to deserve punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life. We didn't do anything to deserve eternal life. So the new birth, John 3, it's everywhere. Jesus taught it. It's everywhere in the Bible. God is the one who brings about the new birth by his spirit. And the way the new birth actually comes about practically in our lives is by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All for the purpose of being those first fruits of glorifying God, the best of the crop, the cream of the crop, not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome. God wants to bring a gospel harvest to heaven for his joy, for his glory. And so he does that in and through us, not because of us or by us. So the question remains, what do we do? We have absolutely no part in the new birth, it seems. That's the whole point of Jesus' analogy here. What do we do? Asked in a different way. What can you do today? If you were to say, you know what, I don't know if I see the effects of the Spirit in my life. I don't know if I see that the new birth has taken place. What can you do today? Are there seven steps you can do to make the new birth happen? No. All a sinner can do is admit their sin and ask God to send his spirit. That's all you can do. I do this every day with my kids. I plead with God that he would be merciful to grant the new birth to my kids. I can't make it happen. They can't make it happen. There's nothing they can do. The wind needs to blow. And if it does not, they will not receive Jesus as their greatest treasure. I pray every day, God, please be merciful to make the new birth happen in Chelsea's heart, in Ethan's heart. Make the new birth happen. Give them life. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Ask and you shall receive. If you are saved, then you need to know what a miracle it is that you're saved. You need to renounce self-reliance. You need to say, it wasn't of me. It is God doing it. Even if you are a quote-unquote good person, you could never be moral enough. You could never be perfect. You could never keep the rules enough to make God love you. You could never cleanse yourself. You could not create in your heart new affections for God. You needed God to do that. So if you are saved, God worked a miracle in your heart, not because of you, but despite you, has brought you to himself to give you life that must lead us to thank him. If you know somebody who's not saved, you can show them their sin, you can show them their need for a savior, and you can ask them to plead with God that the new birth would happen in their life. God, I praise you for your grace. We have done nothing to deserve it. We have done nothing to earn it. We never will. We can never get to the place in our lives where we don't need you. The same grace that justified us is the grace that sanctifies us. So we come before you so thankful. Why us? Why me? Why did, why did you in your grace see me and say, come to life? God, we just say thank you. God, I pray for our friends, our family, who, like Nicodemus, are saying, how can these things be? Why is it the case that I can't be a good person and by my own goodness and my own merit get to heaven? God, may they see the preciousness of Jesus Christ as their hearts are made new. May we not lose hope. May we not grow weary of praying for them that you would grant the new birth to happen in their lives. God, may we be an example of the evidence of the new birth to them that they would see and be blown away. And God, now we just want to come before you and we just want to say thank you. Your grace amazes us. And we love you not because we are awesome. We love you because you first loved us and sent your son to give us the ability to love you. Hi.